Welcome to another episode of The Southern Roost, a member of the Flyways and Highways Collective. If you are looking for the show about what's happening in the world of waterfowl, you are in the right place. From the sportsman's paradise capital of the world, I am your host, Aaron Head. Join with me in this endeavor is my co-host, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. Join us as we keep a pulse on the duck beat across our flyways. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Roost. We have Dr. Kevin Ringelman here with us today from LSU. And so, Dr. Ringelman, if you go ahead and give us a little bit about yourself and your background, and you can break off into uh, your earliest waterfowl hunt memory and kind of general background of you. Sure. Great to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Um, so, my name is Kevin Ringelman. Uh, I'm an associate professor at LSU, um, and I hold an endowed professorship. Uh, it's the H. Dale Hall Ducks Unlimited Endowed Professorship in Wetlands and Waterfowl Conservation. Um, I've been here for eight or nine years now, um, and I've got a research program that spans anywhere from South Louisiana uh, up into Prairie Canada. I've active in, in pretty much all four flyways. Um, so we're here to talk about model ducks, which we'll uh, get into a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, you asked for for sort of how I got here. Um, so I I grew up in in Colorado. Uh, my dad was um, uh, a researcher for the Colorado Division of Wildlife. Uh, and then we moved to North Dakota when he took a job as director of conservation planning for Ducks Unlimited out of the Bismarck office. And so my worldview has always been sort of steeped in waterfowl research um, just because of my dad. And, you know, both my mom and dad were avid duck hunters. And so my first duck hunting memory was a place called Fossil Creek Reservoir um, in the front range of Colorado. I was about 11. Um, my first duck was a green winged teal. Um, I kind of winged it on the first shot. Um, and then had to chase it down in the mud and my hip boots and stuff. And I still have that photo and still have that memory. So it's sort of evolved as a passion from there. Awesome. You know, I duck hunted all throughout, you know, uh, my childhood kind of had to take a bit of a break, uh, in undergrad and my undergrad, um, at Cornell university in New York. And so I was pretty busy with my studies there, uh, but really got back into it, uh, in grad school. I did my PhD at, at university of California, Davis and the public land system they have in California is really accessible. Uh, without a lot of equipment. And so, you know, you can you can hunt on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Um, and so I'd be up before classes on Wednesdays, you know, trying to scratch up, you know, a, a half limit before I had to get to class. So um, it's been a it's been a fun ride. Um, and then uh, I've been here at LSU for, yeah, like I said, like eight or nine years. Awesome. So like you went from UC Davis straight to LSU for that was like your first um, posting yeah, so I got, job? I got my PhD um, in 2013, and then I went to the University of Delaware for about 10 months on a postdoc working on movement ecology of American black ducks. Um, and then this position opened up here at LSU. Um, uh, Dr. Frank Rower uh, moved from, from here at LSU to be um, the full-time uh, chief scientist for Delta Waterfowl, and so left this position open, and that's the one I have now. Awesome, man. So, okay, you remember your first uh, green wing teal. Uh, 11 years old, Fossil Creek. And, you know, talking to all these people, I always ask like a general background on like earliest hunt memory and stuff on all these interviewees. And it's like, I try to ask myself, I, I don't remember mine, to be honest. I was um, just out of high school and college. And I know it was in, in the Alexandria, Louisiana area. And we shot some ducks. I was so new to it. And it all happened so fast. I really don't know what my first species is. So that's, that's awesome. So I tried digging up pictures, couldn't find it. So love it. So been in LSU eight to nine years. And so what is your uh, job title at uh, LSU? So I'm an associate professor. Um, so my uh, uh, appointment at LSU is 60% research, 40% teaching. 
So I teach a variety of undergraduate and graduate classes um, and also do uh, train graduate students at the master's and PhD level. Awesome. Okay. So at any one time, how many students do you have underneath you doing waterfowl type research? And do you have oh. any other specialties? Yeah, right now I have too many. I have uh, six right now, uh, uh, five master's students and one PhD student. And we're going to hire a new master's student uh, probably tomorrow. Okay. Uh, but the good thing is that, is that three of them uh, are going to be graduating at some point in the fall between September and December. So it'll take me back down to about four students, which is about the right number. Okay. Awesome. So just like we've already touched on, so the reason why we're here, of course, is uh, continuing our Model Duck mini-series. Of course, the listeners will know we've talked to Owen Best, who is um, real big at the Lujan Department of Wildlife Fisheries. We've talked to Phil, Dr. Phil Ovretsky over at UTEP. He's a, the probably the guy when it comes to duck genetics. We've had a breakdown of mild duck genetics, how they differ from other mild-like species. We talked about how the, why they're non-migratory and their kind of evolutionary origins uh, to answer much of those questions. But So I guess we're coming here to kind of finish the uh, tail end of our model duck mini series. And so I guess from your perspective, Dr. Uh, Ringelman, so what is uh, your specialty as it relates to model ducks? Um, I know we, I've seen some on your website. You have a great publications out there about um, thermal imaging drones, different habitat studies, overall ecology papers, kind of give us a, a, a your niche when it came to the uh, model ducks. Sure. So, um, so my background is uh, largely in breeding biology of waterfowl. I do a few wintering studies um, in Louisiana, but but I largely work with with breeding ducks and did in, in grad school and things like that. And so, coming to Louisiana, um, obviously the model duck is one of our flagship waterfowl species of the state. Um, so they're you know non migratory. They rely on coastal marsh and associated you know, upland habitats throughout their annual cycle, um, and their populations are in pretty steep decline. Um, at least in Louisiana. So, you know, we're going from 100,000 estimated individuals in 2010 to something less than 40,000 now, um, which is a pretty serious decline. When you look at North American waterfowl writ large, and they're doing better than almost any other group of birds in North America. And so seeing the decline of such a charismatic species for Louisiana is obviously very concerning for, you know, state agencies, federal agencies, and certainly um, for the research community as well. And so, and one of the first projects that I got involved in um, then logically was working with model ducks and trying to answer um, some of the important questions that that are still outstanding um, about that species. So the um, the Gulf Coast Joint Venture, which is um, sort of the research and habitat delivery arm of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan for this region, uh, has a model duck working group, which is a collection of scientists uh, that that develops important research questions and tries to highlight you know, where the demographic bottlenecks are for this species. And one of the big unknowns um, for model ducks when I arrived here was just learning more about their breeding biology. So previous studies um, have documented uh, a really wide range of nest survival. So anywhere from you know, 5% uh, up into the high 20s and um, probably anything below, if, if they're anything like mallards, anything below about 15% um, is, is too low to sustain populations. Um, and from some of the, the mathematical models that we've constructed for model duck population growth um, have indicated that recruitment, especially breeding propensity, so the, the actual act of deciding to make a nest, and nest survival are like the critical components of, of uh, model duck populations, accounting for um, something like 60% of the variation of population growth rate. And so those are, those are parameters that we really need to know a lot more about. But 
model ducks are tough to study. So when you're studying ducks on the prairies, if you want to find nests, uh, you string a chain between two ATVs and drive them parallel through a field across the grass. Um, and then the hen jumps up from a nest. You walk off the ATV, you can find the nest. It's not a big deal. We found 400 and something nests um, in Canada with you know very little effort this year. But you can't exactly drive ATVs across the coastal marsh of Louisiana, right? I mean, there's, there's no roads. It's all, it's all water. Um, parcels of uplands are very small. And so you kind of need to study them in a very different way. And so we um, approached studying their breeding ecology by using telemetry. And so uh, okay. for three summers in a row, uh, we captured model ducks when they are molting and flightless in August, September. Uh, you capture them on airboats during during new moons when it's totally dark out. Um, spotlight them, roll up on them with an airboat, grab them, stuff them in a crate. Um, it's exactly as wild as it sounds. And totally fine. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we fitted them um, with these GPS GSM transmitters, uh, which log uh, GPS locations and then transmit them wirelessly to the cellular network such that we can sit at our laptops at the office and keep track of where all the model ducks are. So um, obviously you can get loads of information from uh, these transmitters, everything from movements to survival, but we were particularly interested in, in breeding ecology. And so my graduate student, my PhD student, um, who's since graduated, uh, Lizzie Bonchek, she would uh, watch for indications of nesting activity. So you see, you know, these transmitters log point after point after point in the same upland area over and over again in whatever March or April kind of looks like she's making a nest, right? And so then Lizzie would go out and try to identify those nesting locations, um, you know, count the number of eggs, uh, incubation stage, and then check it after the female had either uh, her nest had been destroyed or after she had successfully hatched the nest to confirm the fate of that nest. And so in that way, we were able to study the nesting ecology of the species using these transmitted individuals. Fascinating. Okay. So brief recap, a couple of things that I thought was awesome was overall, the reason why we kind of started this model duck project is so I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana on this podcast, doing this model duck mini series. And so North Louisiana, you hunt ducks. You could, most people don't even know what a model duck is. So it's literally just on this Gulf Coast region. And a lot of people get one that have lived here their entire life and they call it, you know, oh, it's just a summer hen, French mallard, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it really needs to be something special. It's like shooting a black duck. You know, we don't have those on this flyway. So the fact that you said it's our flagship waterfowl species, just, I mean, freaking love it. I mean, hunters in the, in this state, especially, you know, you know, sometimes you can get too divided amongst ourselves in our different regions. Like, oh, why do I care about mild ducks? I've never even seen one in this state, but to have a species go from 100K, like you mentioned, down to 40K now in a period over 13 years, definitely alarming. So I love the fact that we brought that home back to it. It seriously is, is our flagship mother species. I mean, it's it's our bread and butter backyard duck. Um, and so the Gulf Coast Joint Venture Arm, you have a model duck focus group. And that's I, I, that's new to me. So uh, who composes some of that, that group overall? Is it people across? I know there's Florida model ducks. We talked to that about that before. and then the uh, you know, Western Gulf Coast species is a breakdown by arm. Is it a total total number counts? Yeah. So the the uh, model duck working group is a collection of um, uh, agency, NGO, and university uh, researchers. So um, there's uh, folks from Ducks Unlimited, from LWF, from TPWD, uh, from LSU, Mississippi State, Texas A and M. 
who come together and sort of think about model duck conservation, uh, model duck science, um, and where we are. And they actually, we actually just finished writing the 2023 model duck conservation plan update, which is an update from uh, whatever it was written like a decade ago. So it synthesizes okay. all of the latest available science on model ducks from populations to disease to lead poisoning, um, you know, conservation uh, delivery programs that are available for landowners to receive financial assistance if they want to help provide model duck habitats. Um, sort of a wealth of information. I'm, I'll drop that to you an email after we're done here. Okay. It's already published. Like, so we can, I can share that. We can find that. It That'd is. be great. Yeah. I know you just mentioned real quick in that part of the things that it looked at lead poisoning. So I'm from the generation that I've only shot steel shot. I know we got older listeners and, um, you know, my, my, my father's and grandfather's era, they shot lead shot. And then I know it's a big deal about, you know, when, why did that change? When did that change? So what have you found as far as um, lead poisoning kind of with relates to model ducks in that uh, publication? Yeah, so so um, a synthesis of the latest research from the last 10 years indicates that if you go out and just sample randomly ducks on the landscape, uh, most juveniles do not have um, detectable levels of lead in them, but 25% of adults do have detectable levels of lead. Um, it's below the level of toxicity, so like it doesn't seem like those individuals are sick from it, but it's pretty prevalent out there. What's more concerning is that if you look at only harvested individuals, um, 75% uh, of juveniles have lead exposure and 25 and that same 25% of adults have lead exposure. And if you take, if you look at the mean levels of those that do have lead exposure, it is at toxic levels. So um, uh, that means that when you shoot a model duck, right, it's, it's more likely to be one that is exposed to lead um, and potentially is, is facing lead toxicity. So we don't have a good handle on, whether that is from legacy historical lead shot from the 1980s before the ban, or whether it's from illegal use of lead shot today, but it remains a, a source of concern um, for model duck population. It's one of those things. It's like we just we don't know really what demographic effect it has. Like we go out and measure lead in the in the blood or in the bones or whatever, but in terms of you know how that relates to their populations, it's much harder to determine. You know, you you could imagine that uh, a, a model duck that has some level of lead toxicity may be less likely to initiate a nest. Um, maybe that lead is being passed down into eggs that are then less successful. So there could be a variety of demographic effects, but that's really hard to tease out. And I know I'm not a, you know, definitely not a veterinarian by any means, but of course, most people on this show know backgrounds of pharmacy. So we study in school effects of lead toxicity on human species, for example, you know, the most famous one you learn about is uh, Beethoven. Um, you know, he had Basically, back then, lead pipes were, you know, plumbing back in Europe was lined with lead. They didn't know about the dangers of it. And so, uh, you know, he was writing his last few symphonies, um, essentially deaf. And all that is from lead toxicity is what the leading research points to. It's probably multifactorial like anything else. But what we learned for clinical manifestations as far as a human goes could be a lot of reproductive issues. So the ability to want to breed is diminished. And then also just overall even if you have the will, it's not able to actually happen. So is that similar to, um, you think possibly translates over to waterfowl in a similar way? Thus, that would affect future offspring because if they're not procreating, you're not going to have baby ducks. So yeah. and if they do, yeah, they're think, less likely to survive. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I don't know of any published research on model ducks that's conclusively demonstrated that link, but it makes logical sense to me. I got you. Okay. So fascinating because I know another thing that we always – you know, lead's the most readily available and what we use for all decoy weights. 
But I mean, odds are you're picking those up, bringing them back out of the marsh. So you have a, a sitting blind there the whole year. How much of that lead actually sloughs off of the decoy weight? Uh, I mean, there's probably multifactorial reasons. You got fishermen. Um, of course, if you change, you start going down this rabbit hole of, you know, hunters are conservationists. And as we change things, a box of, you know, lead ammunition is the cheapest one in the store. You know, if you increase prices to the steel shot, which is what you have to do now, you're putting a, um, possibly increasing the threshold to play the game. Essentially it costs more money to go out there and play the game. So theoretically you're going to over time lose less hunters. I know hunters and recruitment of and retention of hunters, especially duck hunters has been on the decline for, for many years. I know they have had Ramsey came on here and like educated us about that a little bit. Some of our first podcasts we did. And um, so that's also striking. And so I'd hate to have a total lead ban and then all the fishing stuff is out, all that kind of stuff. And then, so you have less people participating in the game than why care about the game. That's also a, a threat too, I think. So it's going to be a, probably a multifactorial issue related to some of that kind of stuff going forward too. But you know, the science is science. Lead is, is harmful. So it's going to be something we might have to work towards for future generations down the road for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I know you wanted to talk today about the, um, uh, the reduction in the model duck, um, uh, season, you know, the, the closure for that first 15 days. Yes. So go right. So kind of, um, recap the listeners. Um, I know Owen spoke heavily about that in our previous podcast, but go ahead and kind of, we can recap that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is, um, you know, model ducks have, have declined in bag limit historically, and now there's, uh, what is it? A 15 day or two week closure for, for model yeah, ducks. So Right now, I think it's going to be set for, it's already published and officially set 15 days closed, first 15 days of the big duck season. So um, that's going to be for each respective zone of the state. So we have east zone, west zone now. So you got to know when your start date is and count 15 days. It's going to line just like with scop. So whenever you can go from one scop to two scop a day, you can then start shooting model ducks legally. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Texas did this um, uh, a few years back and the idea was to... Um, basically give model ducks two weeks to get wise to hunting um, and to try to improve survival rates. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of, of logic and science behind that. So, you know, I mentioned that we had these transmitters on, on model ducks. Um, and one of the things we found is that uh, survival uh, was uh, when, when birds tended to get shot during the hunting season, it was during the first two weeks. And after that, not a single bird that we had a transfer on got shot. So, um, wow. they definitely, and ask any, you know, any Louisiana duck hunter, like by the second split, like, you know, you don't know what that, that dark bird is at, at sunrise, but if it loops 60 yards outside your decoys, it, it's a model duck, right? Cause they know exactly For where sure. is, they know where <laughs> every hunter is. We've all seen it. Um, and so, you know, there is a little bit of logic to that, um, in, in that Texas has, has pursued a similar regulatory strategy. Um, and we have some telemetry data to suggest that in fact, Yes, um, survival is much higher later in the season than it is during that first two weeks. And so I think, you know, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is, is trying to do what they can um, to, to help model duck populations. You know, um, to some extent, like, we still don't um, have a, a high degree of confidence that survival is, is the primary reason for model duck decline. Um, we still think it has something to do with reproductive success um, uh, and recruitment, but, you know, as, as a regulatory agency, it's like, it's one of the only levers that they have to pull, right? They can't just magically Makes make sense. more model ducks by policy. And so one of the policies that they think is going to be effective um, or could be effective is this, this two week, you know, sort of intro period for model ducks to, to, to get wise of hunting season. 
So that that makes completely sense. And I don't think we have anybody summed that up as much. So I know we talked to to Owen a little bit previously, like we already mentioned, and one of the biggest issues he brought up on, on that episode was habitat loss. It's also due to contributing to their decline. Um, but you know, we can't go out there and make make land. Mother Nature has to help help us do that a little bit. I know they got plans in Mississippi River to help move sediment back into the coastal marshes of Louisiana, which will be great, but you know, 25, 50, 100 years from now, it's not going to help tomorrow when they open up the gates finally on that project, right? So pulling yeah, a lever. Would... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you bring up bring up a good point. I think Owen spot on that that habitat loss and degradation is a is a primary source of, of the model duck decline. No, I think it's it's definitely um, you know loss of coastal marsh um, and degradation from you know historical dredging for oil and gas extraction and all all the reasons that we're losing marsh sea level rise, you know, increased erosion and things like that. Uh, but some of the modeling that's been done suggests that we're expected to lose about eighty percent of fresh marsh. By 2100, and so uh, that's that's pretty concerning for model ducks. Uh, at least you know taking the taking the long term vision, thinking about you know my kids and my grandkids. You know, right now from the research that that I've been involved with, it seems like loss of upland habitat has been um, uh, very bad for model ducks. So conversion of uplands into into crops, you know, whether it's sugarcane or something else, um, but sometimes it's just mismanagement of upland habitats. So we've got a study up uh, right now where we've got trail cameras uh, positioned on simulated model duck nests. So we put out, basically create our own nest bowl and put out um, chicken eggs uh, with a trail camera to try to figure out what types of predators are eating model ducks in various habitat types. Okay. And first of all, we've seen loads of interesting predators. Um, but one of the things that we were not expecting is like we've had entire grids of trail cameras like get burned up. Uh, in prescribed fire events in like April or May, which is when model ducks really need grass on the landscape and they don't need their nest getting torched. So we've had trail cameras get plowed up, get burned, you know. So some of the um, uh, major recommendations out of this model duck conservation plan update that I was talking about is, is, you know, planning your prescribed fire for before the model duck nesting season. So get it done by January at the latest. Um, and try not to disturb those grassland habitats in March, April, or May when those ducks are trying to pull off nests. Um, so I think that the that even you're, I mean you're right. Like it's really hard to to you know make new land, or there's not um, you know a, a ton of incentive for producers to take land out of production and put it back in grass. But if there's grass that's out there, I think that um, you know some some education and outreach to manage those habitats, I think, would be really valuable for model duck populations. That makes. Tons of sense. I mean, around my house, uh, I'm based out of Lafayette, Central Louisiana, Central South Louisiana, and um, every day driving to work, um, you see a field that used to be crawfish farm, sugarcane, and prescribed burns. I mean, like, so as a pharmacist, everybody comes in. You know, the sugarcane fields are burning because everyone comes in for their allergy medicine. Uh, that's a you know trigger for a lot of people's allergies too, as well. So uh, definitely something I see on a day to day basis. I'm sure a lot of people in South Louisiana would agree for that too. Um, yeah, so a couple actually, of, yeah, go ahead. Let me let me uh, just add a add a caveat or a correction to something I just said. I you know I mentioned that there's not a ton of financial incentive for producers to take land you know out of out of crops and put it back into grass, but there are programs out there that do exist. So um, Owen hopefully talked about the Coastal Grassland Restoration Incentive Program, this Sea Grid, okay. uh, where the state agency provides financial incentives for you to maintain good grass 
or to restore you know, marginal cropland back to grass for the benefit of model ducks. And so there's a variety of, of incentive programs that are um, provided you know, through the state agency or through um, um, NRCS that you know, for your listeners out there who, who have marginal land and want to put it back in grass to help model ducks, um, you know, get on the LWF website and, and call your, your um, local extension agents, things like that, if, if you want to do a little bit of something. Okay, that's awesome. So yeah, he mentioned a little bit about the sea grip and then um, we did put in the show notes there to kind of where to go uh, on his episode. And so that's something that is out there that, you know, it means a podcaster and a podcast listener. I hear about all the programs they have up north and you hear about very few in the south as far as um, those incentive measures. So it's good that we have something in the state for sure. And by all y'all to check that out. And we'll probably try to include that too in uh, today's show notes as well. So a couple other things you mentioned here was about the breeding biology being your major focus. And so looking at your previous research, um, so the area that I hunt is the Cameron Parish area heavily. And I was surprised to show that was one of the lowest areas of success in the state. That's of course a, a little bit of a dated study. I was reading on there like five to 6% nest success rate in that area. Do you have any ideas or even um, anything that might be why that area is declining heavily? Or is there another area of Louisiana doing better? in your opinion, and kind of what attributes to those successes or failures? Yeah, it's a good question um, and, and a nuanced one to answer. So, um, yeah, so some of the historical research has found very low nest survival um, in southwest Louisiana. And additional historical research, you know, from the 2010s has found uh, higher survival in like southeast. Um, others have found that model ducks do pretty well on like dredge spoil islands. And things like that, where others have found that if they don't put their nests up high enough on those islands, they get flooded. You know, if we get uh, rain events and things like that. Nest success is tricky to study. Um, and maybe I can all tell a story that'll help highlight why. Yeah. So for our telemetry study, um, for the nests that we found and monitored, uh, we found that nest survival was pretty good. Um, it was on the order of 15 to 20%, which was, was higher than we were expecting. But one of the, the, the nuances here is that when Lizzie would go out and try to find these nests, you know, like she's seeing the telemetry points, log location, you know, after location, she'd go out and try to find nests. And what she found um, in a lot of instances were nests that were destroyed while they were still in the laying period. And so what that means, that really makes me question, like, how many nests did we miss in the telemetry data that she just didn't log enough points for us to notice? And she tried to nest, but those were also destroyed. So I think that the nest survival estimates that we got of that 15 to 20 percent are probably biased high because I think that there were a bunch of nests that we never found that were just destroyed so fast that we could never detect them. And that's sort of true no matter how you do a nest survival study, that there are a bunch of nests that are destroyed before you have the ability to even locate them. And so that 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 means that that you know you're the picture the picture is rosier than you think it is. Um, that is the primary reason that we undertook this this study of simulated nests, right? Where, where I describe we put out, you know, we make a nest bowl in a in a place where a model duck would nest and put some chicken eggs in there and put a trail camera out because now we know where that nest is and we know exactly how long it's been on the landscape. And so we can, you know, the thought was uh, we need to figure out if there's particular habitat types 
where predators are super common um, and they're just destroying nests within days, right? And there's other habitat types where predators are, you know, for whatever reason, you know, not getting into the model ducks as as heavily. And so Alex is still analyzing a lot of those data now, but um, it appears to be that there are not a lot of consistent differences in survival among habitat types, and that's very patchy. So uh, one particular, you know, study replicate will have super high predation rates, um, and all the nests will get whacked right away, um, and then others will do fairly well. So it seems to be something about like a very localized predator community effect uh, that's driving sort of model duck nest survival. And so, you know, to your question about is it something about Southwest Louisiana? I think it's at a smaller scale than that. I think it's like, you know, is this square mile or something like that bad for model ducks or good for model ducks? Um, okay. One of the other things that we found from uh, the telemetry study is that, you know, all the research until we did this study suggested that model ducks nest in upland habitats and nest on the ground in, in grasslands. Uh, but when Lizzie went out and tried to find some nests, she found some of uh, model ducks that were nesting in marsh over the water. So they actually built up nests just like a canvas back would do um, out of bulrush and things like that, make a platform and then nest on that. And those nests survived quite well. So, um, you know, is that uh, sort of a, a new evolutionary strategy to avoid, you know, terrestrial predators uh, you know, are they subject to other predators like uh, alligators and things like that? So it's a really sort of dynamic and and still uh, lots of research questions to answer uh, in that regard. Fascinating. So one of the Owen's highlights was model ducks are super smart and to kind of recap there and they change. They've in Texas, he brought up as his studies in Texas that he was on how they moved so far um, west and inland that they're having this whole dusky duck dilemma of is it a mexican duck is it a hen mallard is it a model duck is it hybrids of those so you know what you bring up is that model ducks greatest attribute for survival is their ability to change like on a dime I mean, it's picking up a trick from canvas bags obviously they didn't learn it from canvas bags so they can't go up there and watch them but um it sounds like they've found an evolutionary trigger that um hopefully leads to some success down the road um anywhere uh in particular that you think they're doing really great as compared to other parts of the state and maybe what could be going on down there. That's not happening in other areas. Uh, difficult to tell because there's just not, there's not uh, sort of that broad geographical scale of research to determine gotcha. you know, okay. geographical variation. Uh, we know their population is doing better in Texas than they are in Louisiana. You know, some of those, um, you know, uh, Anahuac and Aransas, like they've got some pretty good grass uh, on those refuges in some places. So I think, and then that's helping their model duck populations. It's kind of leading us back to habitat, like habitat. I think Texas is, is still losing habitat, but not at the same rate as Louisiana is. I think Louisiana has a greater decline versus Texas from what the uh, what people have clued in on, probably. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. And what you just mentioned, you know, when they uh, there's some new, some new research getting started in the brush country of Texas, where there's this new model duck population that we didn't that either wasn't there or we weren't paying attention or whatever. So um, there's some new research that's going to be starting in the next few years. Uh, to try to understand more about uh, how many there are. Are they moving to the coast? Are they staying there? All sorts of stuff. So stay tuned for the next five years on that. I know, right? That's one thing that we love about science, right? It's just uh, always changing, always evolving, always find something new out, but look, turn over a rock. Um, so going on to the next uh, topic in our discussion, 
is I know you had a research paper I thought was pretty fascinating on hurricanes, and how they affect ducks. I know it wasn't directly related to model ducks, but go ahead and kind of speak about that a little bit and kind of share some of your experiences maybe around that topic. Yeah. Yeah. I think you found, I've, I've got a couple hurricane papers, but there actually is one on model ducks. Oh, sweet. So, okay. I missed it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, right. We've got all these telemetry devices out on model ducks and mostly our, our study was over. Um, and then of course, uh, hurricane Laura came through. Right. Um, you know, and it, the, the landfall of Hurricane Laura was basically right on Rockefeller Refuge. You know, it, it like, it was on Cameron, uh, the city of Cameron, right where we right. had a bunch of model ducks. And so, you know, there's basically no research on wildlife and hurricanes in terms of like acute mortality events, because, you know, quite honestly, uh, studying animals is, is rightly deprioritized in the wake of the tragedy of, you know, a devastating hurricane. For sure. And even if you wanted to study them, like you literally can't get there, right? Because it's all underwater. Um, even when it's not underwater, you know, the rack line has made the highways impassable. And so you couldn't even get there if you wanted to, right? And so sure. um, we were fortunate enough to actually have birds that were pre-marked that we could then ask, what did the hurricane do to them? Um, so uh, as a reminder, you know, when Hurricane Laura made landfall, that's right at the time when model ducks are molting. And so many of them are flightless, not all, but oh, many. Man. Okay. And so we had, um, you know, whatever it was, like a dozen birds, 16 birds, I forget the exact number, um, that that had active GPS transmitting units on them. Um, we, you know, model ducks don't move very much anyhow, uh, but we could tell that at least um, a handful of them were flighted. So they could have moved out of the way. They could have flown to Texas. They could have flown to Shreveport. They could have flown, you know, just inland to Gaydon would have been fine, right? But they're sitting there on the coast of, at Rockefeller, and they did not move. Um, they just sort of hunkered down and decided to make uh, the best of it. And then when that 20-foot wall of water washed ashore from Hurricane Laura, um, 40% of our ducks went offline within hours. So, And wow. we know that it's not like the units getting knocked offline or something about the, the transmitters. Because we had other birds that were still transmitting, um, but a bunch of them just died. And so, you know, I don't know. It, there's always transmitter effects. Like if you put a backpack on a bird, like that's definitely imposing a physiological cost. But if our birds are at all representative of unmarked model ducks, and that certainly suggests that Hurricane Laura was a major mortality event in Southwest Louisiana. You know, even if it's not 40%, whatever, maybe it's 20%. It doesn't matter. Like a load of model ducks died in that hurricane. Um, and that's, and that's a little bit wild to me because, you know, as a bird that has evolved, you know, on, on the Gulf coast with hurricanes, like feels like they should be a little bit better adapted to that. But, you know, I don't know if it's just the, the increasing, you know, strength of, of hurricanes these days that is, is really doing them harm. But man, that study certainly suggested that when these things come on shore and they're super strong and it's the wrong time of year, like it can kill birds for sure. Do you think that has any other effects on is that? So I had a lot of family members, unfortunately affected by the hurricane and they're all okay. Everyone's fine. Everything's been rebuilt now, but um, uh, till season was like two weeks or less after that. Do you think that translates to any other ducks that were already down here, like for the early season or wood ducks or anything else that might hang black blade whistling ducks, anything else that might hang around here? Do you think it's just a model duck thing or do you think it was probably 20 to 40% across the board? Uh, difficult to know. Uh, actually there was um, uh, a reddish egret study that 
just got published about two, three days ago, also from Rockefeller, that similarly documented mortality events. So I think some of our other uh, local water birds probably also took a hit. You know, ducks, uh, we probably didn't have that many teal down here yet. And I think that, you know, blue and teal on migration south is like a pretty adaptive and resilient creature. And it just it just didn't go where the habitat sucked. Um, and they probably did okay. You know, and then flip side of that is um, these hurricanes tend to reset the successional state. So all that salt killed off a bunch of invasives, right? And then the next the next year, like we had a bumper crop of annual, you know, duck food producing plants and like the, the habitat was really good um, the following year. So there's, there's, there's good and bad, um, you know, for if we, if we talk about sort of wintering ducks as well. Um, I will say that one of the unexpected knock-on consequences of that hurricane is like it killed, you know, it killed upland habitats too, right? It, it put water on everything. And so as a result, when we're talking about nesting model ducks that following spring, um, their uh, nesting habitat looked pretty crappy. Um, that's from natural causes like hangover from the hurricane, but also because like the, the cattle producers, they didn't have anywhere to put their cows. And so whatever patch of grass they could possibly find had cows on it mm-hmm. um, and therefore no grass for model ducks. So there's like this acute mortality effect of hurricanes, killing model ducks, big storm surge, loads of winds, kills them. And then because like of the habitat dynamics and you know, cattle producers needing to raise cows, like whatever grass was left sucked um, the following spring for model ducks. And so it's got this like acute and then chronic effect. Uh, I think is a little bit of a double whammy, at least for that first year. Interesting. So it's about 20 to 40% of the, of the transfers went offline. So roughly 60 to 80% did they move and kind of where did they move to? Did y'all notice any trends with that? Or was it random? Did oh. they, they stay and survive? And that's what happens. They stayed and survived. Yeah. So not a single one moved out of the 16, like went not, different I mean, direction. Not like not moved in terms of like move out of the way of the hurricane. Right. Like we fully expected them to like go to Texas because we've seen that. They've seen them do that at other times of the year. They'll just pick up and randomly go to like literally Shreveport. Um, and they did not do this. So, you know, whether some of them might not have been able to fly, um, but we know some of them could have and they didn't. But yeah, they just hunkered down and like just rode the waves, man. I don't, I don't know how they, how they did it, but um, it's yeah, crazy to me. It's just, that's just crazy <laughs> to me. So having hunted over there after Hurricane Laura for teal season, I mean the damage and the destruction, yeah, for human effect, yeah, was was massive. And you know, is we're top, we're apex predator, right? You know, it's it's we're, we're the news is not going to report. Oh, you know, twenty percent model ducks died from the storm. It's not going to make news headlines, right? So. The seeing the um, seeing the effects afterward, but you're you're what you just said is exactly my experience um, in the same marsh. So like, as a duck flies, I'm closer to Cameron, the city of Cameron, and where, where the hurricane made landfall from the main area where I hunt at over there, um, than I am from like Lake Charles or or anything else. So seeing the difference in habitat, like you mentioned, the this past season was by numbers was my um, greatest duck season yet uh, since I've been a hunter. Uh, which corresponds to, the, I think, the food rebound, waterways that had never been opened in years due to Salvania or, or water hyacinth or anything like that was opened up. Um, there's, there's, like you mentioned, um, short and long-term effects that are both good and bad. So I know, I guess I missed that study. I'm going to have to go back and look at that for sure. But I know the one I was reading was a different species of ducks um, and on a different part of Louisiana. Could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So that was um, a study of scop on on Lake Pontchartrain, Lesser Scop, Dogree, 
Um, and that's another one of the, the earliest uh, projects that I got involved with at LSU, my master's student, Clay Stroud. Um, so uh, the population of, of scop on Lake Pontchartrain uh, fluctuates wildly. Like you can go from zero ducks to like more than a million um, in any given year, which is dramatic. And so why? Um, well, the logical explanation is something about food resources, right? Okay, it's, back to food. Okay. Yeah, it's something about, you know, what, what food there is to eat. And so... Um, uh, so the first step of this study was to figure out, well, what are they eating on Lake Pontchartrain? And so we had to go out and, and collect scop to see what they were eating. Um, and so you can't collect uh, ducks over decoys because that's a biased sample. It tends to be birds that are in poor condition. Um, maybe they have lead toxicity or whatever it is. Uh, maybe they have you know parasites or other disease. And so you can't you can't just collect birds over decoys for a scientific study. You have to collect them you know, quote unquote, like as randomly as you possibly can. And so right. we got on a speedboat and put clay up at the front uh, with a, with a shotgun. And we tried to just run those big flocks and eventually try to shoot enough birds um, to, to get stomach contents from them. So that was actually way harder than we thought it was going to be. Um, but huh. we eventually uh, shot enough birds. So then you, you know, inject them with, um, uh, with ethanol and rose bengal dye and you dissect them and see what they're eating. Um Long story short, they're eating uh, small to medium-sized rangia clams, um, and that's their preference. So we also went out and sampled, you know, what was available, so you can see what they're eating versus what was available. Okay, which ones do they prefer? They really like those small and medium-sized clams. And like that kind of makes sense because the small ones is just not worth your time, um, and the big ones you might actually choke on, which would mm. also be very bad. Yeah. So um, we partnered with. Um, a researcher, a clam uh, researcher, uh, Mike Poirier at the University of New Orleans, who's been studying uh, clams and other invertebrates on Lake Pontchartrain for his entire career. And so he's got long-term data on clams. We've got long-term data from LDWF on scop populations. And so now we can match these up, right? And so um, not surprisingly, there's loads of scop on Lake Pontchartrain in years when there's loads of these small and medium-sized clams that they like. Cool. Um, but the more interesting thing is that those clam populations really depend on um, environmental conditions and especially hurricanes that roll up through southwest Louisiana. So what happens is a hurricane you know, comes through or it doesn't even have to be a hurricane, it can be a tropical storm, but anything that pushes a bunch of salt onto Lake Pontchartrain uh, and it stirs up the silt and the sediment and it ends up like killing all of the really big clams you know, that have grown big over the years. But that salinity change is also what physiologically induces spawning in these clam species. And so salt comes in, you know, water gets totally turbid, you know, sediment covers up the big clams, kills them all off. But there's lots of little clam larvae that are produced by the saltwater change. So um, those uh, larvae set, and then they grow into those small to medium clams by the following year. And so you get a hurricane in August, kills everything, all the big clams in Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, there's no scop that year on Pontchartrain. Conditions suck. But the next year, there's tons of those small and medium clams that have grown up in the intervening year. And so those are the years that you get loads of scop on Lake Pontchartrain as a result. So it's this cool sort of multi-trophic story where you know hurricane comes in, resets the successional state of clams, uh, habitat sucks for scop, but the next year. Lots of small clams, lots of scoff. 
Awesome. So I know we uh, branched off a little bit. I think we talked about, so to stay tuned listeners, I think me and Dr. Ringling are going to have another discussion on different species of ducks as he's, as you can tell, very varied in his research and field, which is awesome. But um, so Owen brought to us the story about how model ducks are one of the wide, most wide variety of ducks that eat the most random amount of things. They go from brackish water, fresh water, salt water, have a diet of like random snails, small shrimp, all the way to eating grasses and stuff in the grasslands and in the, the upland habitat. Do you think that has any effect on, I know they're not a diving duck species, but is there anything that you might think about that help might on that part of the state affect their diet and rebound that might actually help them out? Or do you think it's more of the double whammy like you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're right. Like model duck diets are super diverse. Um, they use a variety of habitats. And I think you know, that is to their benefit um, in terms of their, their populations and their adaptability to changing conditions, whether that's through long-term chronic loss of habitats or whether that's, you know, these point source, point source disturbance events like hurricanes is like a model duck is pretty good at finding something to eat because they know this area really well, right? And so I think in terms of uh, like for, you know, food resources and trying to provide, you know, specific things to model ducks. I think that's probably a lower priority than um, things about their breeding habitats. Gotcha. Okay. Well, fascinating. So, of course, well, hopefully we'll get together in the future and we can do a whole little episode just on Dogri and uh, maybe on some other species too as well. Um, so, moving quite along here, so the next point we're talking about is we mentioned a lot about habitat decline. Uh, hurricanes, of course, big player in that too as well, the double whammy there. And so we kind of getting to the point to where, what do you think as hunters or just as a random duck hunter, even though you're not related to the Gulf Coast where model ducks are, what can hunters do to kind of help model ducks? Maybe talk about it from the local standpoint or from their overall greater greater view. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, to some extent, it it uh, it depends on how much control hunters have over the land that they hunt. Um, you know, if you're, if, if you control a lot of land and the habitat management on that land, like you can do more for model ducks than, you know, if you're just, you know, a Joe Blow has to go, you know, on public land in, in Southeast or whatever. Um, so yeah, so it's variable. So if you can manage habitat for model ducks, I think promoting grasslands is, is really useful. Um, keeping wa- uh, fresh water. Uh, for broods through May and June, I think is also really important if you have that capability. Um, you know, it's it's well following the rules, right? So uh, there's right. plenty of evidence to suggest that that um, model ducks uh, that their populations could be benefited by not shooting them that first 15 days, as per the new regulations. Uh, yeah, no, real quick, season, right? yeah, that's what I want to interject with. So. We, me and Owen talked about it off camera about, you know, there's been studies shown um, some of those same transmitters. So I wonder, I want to know if you have, I want to preface this, that, you know, here at Flyways Highways Collective and on the Southern Roost, we, we're, we're hunters, literally hunting for the public. We've, we're not perfect and we try to be, you know, we try to follow all the rules for sure. We're not perfect. Um, not a single one of us are has um, for wide variety of reasons, but have you had any transmitters? So I was talking with Owen about, have you had any transmitters go offline uh, during teal season of model ducks before? And what extent was that at? Cause off, we were talking off, off air and he's seen it in his um, areas of Texas where he works of, you know, new hunters or new kids of the game, or even those old ones that um, not saying that it happened to anybody where you think it's a teal and all of a sudden you pick it up and it's not. 
Um, has you had, so have you had any of, uh, studies or anything with your researchers, um, transmitter backpacks that have shown something similar like that in Louisiana and what extent of that is it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story first. So, right. We're just, we're watching these transmitters and we just put them out. It's, you know, August and then it's in September. And then now we're in chill season, September and we're watching our, our birds and mostly hanging around Rockville or whatever. We have a couple that are, you know, on, on private land where they, you know, could be shot at during chill season. And we see this transmitter and it goes from the coastal marsh. And then the next time we see it, it's in like somebody's backyard. And then it's like down a tree line in this dude's farmyard. And it looks exactly like what would happen if somebody shot a model duck, brought it back to just south of Lafayette, cleaned the carcasses and then dumped it like on your back 40. Right. And she's like, oh, my God, like we're going to have to go and like you know, talk to this dude and, you know, Hey, we just want our $1,800 transmitter back. Like, you know, we're not going to try to, you know, bring the law down on you or whatever. And then that bird flew um, and it flew back to the coast of March. So like just a seemingly random movement to this dude's pond and back, you know, South of Lafayette um, and then back again. So um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We were like real nervous. We're gonna have to go knock on this guy's door because we can see the transmitter's yard. Right. Um uh, and during big duck season, we've had, you know, transmitters show up in people's, you know, apartments and things like that. And they'll, they'll call us, you know, there's a phone number on there. And um, so we've gotten all our transmitters back. We have not documented a hunter kill of a model duck on our transmitters during the teal season. Okay. Um, we have had birds go offline during the teal season. Um, it's impossible to know whether, you know, a hunter shot a model duck saw that it had a transmitter and like destroyed the transmitter or just mud stomped that thing like we, just, we don't know right um, we've also had confirmed mortalities during the teal season so a bird died we went out and found it um, interestingly enough a lot of our mortalities during the teal season were on rockefeller refuge where we marked birds which is it, not a huntable refuge to mine. Which is not a huntable okay. refuge. So like they couldn't have been shot by hunters. Like so so and those were probably birds that um you know like I said before putting backpacks on model ducks has a physiological cost. And so you can imagine if you're trying to grow feathers um and you get you get a backpack like you may be there there may be increased mortality um as a result of placing those transmitters on. So that's that's our best guess for why we saw mortalities during during September. Um, it was uh, it was something about transmitter effects and not necessarily illegal hunter kills of of model ducks during September. Well, that's that's awesome. So that's good news. So, so from what Owen was seeing in Texas, of course, you know it could happen to anybody. Um, but from what Owen was seeing in Texas, that he thinks there's a big, you know, somewhat of a decline in model duck numbers related to inadvertent hunter harvest during teal season for sure. Uh, which again. You know, the, the brand new ones, I mean, they just had, that'd be like the youngest ones they have during teal season, right? Like the model duck canage is literally raising, like I've seen groups at 10 to 15 before out on some WMAs and stuff like that flying high. And I only see that during teal season. So it's like their greatest number of clutches and offspring before they start, you know, leaving mama and the family units and stuff like that. Um, so that's good. That's positive for the state of Louisiana compared to Texas. I'm originally from Fort Worth, so I can say that. <laughs> yeah. So... Awesome. So getting back to our other discussion of changing what can hunters do. So you're talking about the sea grip if you own land versus, yep. you know, the average, you know, public land hunter. 
uh, obviously going to be different. So we we broke off from the tangent to talk about teal season disturbance and model ducks, but go, keep, keep going down that yeah. trend. Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah. So some of these habitat programs, um, if you do control land, can be really valuable. Um, I think it, there's, you know, uh, uh, the waterfowl conservation nonprofits that are active in our state um, do a lot of good in terms of uh, uh, habitat conservation. So, you know, whether you're a ducks unloaded person or a delta waterfowl person, uh, both of them are active. You know, DU does a lot of uh, habitat conservation projects in the state of Louisiana. It's a top priority region. And so, you know, by going to a Ducks Unlimited banquets or, you know, donating, you know, paying your $30 to get the magazine or whatever, like all that money is paying for biologists to write uh, North American Waterfowl Conservation Act, NACA, federal grants that bring federal dollars to our state to do habitat conservation for model ducks and other waterfowl in Louisiana. So by donating, you know, by volunteering or donating your money to some of these nonprofits, um, that is, that is doing a lot of good conservation work in Louisiana. So, um, everyone can go to, to, uh, a waterfowl NGO banquets and, you know, drink beer and eat crawfish, uh, and give back, you know, that way. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, so moving into our next part, um, we kind of heavily covered anything. Uh, really the model ducks that I have. Is there anything that you think I missed that'd be worth your time talking about mm-hmm. that you can think of with, with your stuff? Uh, I think that we've done a pretty good job on model ducks. Um, I'm trying to think about, yeah, so current research uh, needs, um, trying to think about other ways to study recruitment. So a lot of the work that I do on the prairie is, is using uh, drones and thermal imaging cameras oh, right, to yeah. study um, to study uh, breeding ecology or breeding ecology of waterfowl. Um, what we found is that uh, these thermal cameras don't work very well for finding nests. And in fact, we've tried to find model duck nests with it in in South Louisiana. Um, and the problem is there's just too many false positives. So when you're flying this thermal imaging camera, just loads of things look like model duck nests and they're not. You go out there and you look and it's especially anthills of all things. Okay. A round hill looks a hell of a lot like a model duck nest um, from the air um, and these thermal imaging cameras. So it doesn't seem to be very effective for that, which is too bad because that would, that would be sort of a game changer. Um, but when they are really effective, both in uh, Northern regions in, you know, Prairie Canada and, and other places in the PPR and in South Louisiana, is in finding model duck broods. So uh, okay. a mama hen and her ducklings light up like a Christmas tree on this thermal imaging camera. And so you can rapidly survey, you know, large expanses of marsh and look for model duck broods. And so if we think about uh, model duck productivity, right? So LDWF flies these model duck breeding pair surveys in right. trans along the coast every year. And that's how we keep track of their populations. And so... One possibility is that we could leverage this drone-based thermal imaging technology to look for broods in some of those same areas. And so then we can, we've can we got basically pairs, number of pairs, and number of broods is your measure of productivity of model ducks in a particular habitat, geography, whatever it is. And so there may be some, some new research there um, and sort of different ways of study, of getting at the model duck productivity question. Um, that that may be possible with future research. So I, I went out. I was with Owen uh, a couple weeks ago, um, um, and uh, some some folks from from Ducks Unlimited uh, flying for model duck. It's a, it's a little late in the year for that, but it was mostly proof of concept. And 
Uh, we didn't find any model duck broods. Uh, they were all old when I mean, we could see them, uh, but they were you know not broods. They were flooded. Okay. Uh, but we actually we found um, some whistling duck broods, full whistling duck broods, and things like that that had you know uh, two week old ducklings and things. So it is. I mean, it's a technology that works. Um, it's just a question of how to deploy that at scale. Awesome. So hopefully some good things come from that because definitely saves some uh, some time and some effort for sure yeah. through all y'all doing all that good work that helps uh, helps those hunters in the long run. Um, another thing that Owen brought up, and I wonder if you have any uh, knowledge about, was kind of like hen houses for hens in like northern parts of the U.S. and wood duck boxes down here. He was talking about some kind of technology. They're trying to study, test, come up with some type of contraption, I guess, to have an artificial model duck nest. Do you have any knowledge, insight, or anything kind of related to that? I wish they would work. Um, but, so we, you know, people have been putting up various styles of hen houses to try to get modeled up. So. Hen houses, like uh, the classic and now most effective hen house design is basically, it's a um, uh, it's a metal tube. I'm holding it in my hands. It's a podcast. I don't know why. I'm doing I know. This. I know. It's okay. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right. So it, basically, it. yeah, it's, it's, it's um, chicken wire, two pieces of chicken wire with a bunch of flax straw in between it. And you put some more flax on the inside and mallards in the prairies will nest in there. Um, and you install these things over water so predators can't get to them. Uh, and mallards do really well. Um, you know, nest survival is very high. 50, 70%, it's off the charts, right? And so, gosh, if only we could get model ducks to use these things, because we've got a lot of water, um, and that could potentially, you know, really bolster their populations. But to the best of my knowledge, for every hen house design that has ever been tried in the last 20 whatever years, there has never been a single documented instance of a model duck using a hen house and raising a nest. So for whatever yeah. reason, like they're closely related to mallards, right? You talk to Phil, but for whatever reason, they will not go in these things. And we wish they would because they would undoubtedly be successful. Man. So he was talking about some kind of ground contraption. That's like the state of the art thing that they're trying to, I think in Texas and other places. And again, he mentioned the same thing too, yeah. right? So yeah, we, I mean, we like, aside from, you know, finding individual nests and like fencing them off from predators, and then praying that no avian predators find them. It's like, I don't, yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough out there for, for model ducks. I hear you. So um, we talked about quite a bit of stuff so far. So kind of moving into the next piece is kind of a little bit about you. So you've, we talked a lot about model ducks today, but what is your overall favorite duck species to study? Uh, it's, a, it's a a tough question. It's like trying to pick a favorite kid, right? I know, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you have a, just a even. So, I really, so we'll, pr- we'll probably do another episode and talk about wood ducks and whistling ducks. Um, okay. Because we have, um, two consecutive PhD projects on that now, and we'll have been studying them for four years at this point, and there's a million interesting things about them. So, yes, everybody stay uh, tuned. That'll be another, yeah. hopefully, another, maybe even a different episode than the Dogri one we plan to do. So, hopefully, y'all stay yeah. tuned for down yeah. the road so, for sure. So, wood ducks and whistling ducks are a totally wild, uh, interplay of species and they're interesting for a, a, a lots of sort of like applied management reasons um, with the rapid expansion of whistling ducks in the southeastern United States, you know, uh, nest parasitism, competition for nest boxes. And they're like from just like a basic ecology science perspective, they're also way interesting. So those are certainly a favorite species. And after spending untold amounts of, of effort trying to find like model ducks and deal with model ducks in the vast expanse of coastal marsh. 
having a bird we can just walk up to the box and find a nest is like way easier and just <laughs> deeply satisfying as opposed okay. to walking around South Louisiana trying to look at these damn model ducks. So they're appealing for those reasons. Um, in terms of uh, prairie nesting ducks, um, I've really taken uh, an affinity to blue-winged teal. Okay. So we've got a blue-winged teal study going on right now. They just they they hold on their nests really tight, and so they're easy to catch on the nest. And so we're doing some really fascinating research um, with drones and with VHF transmitters that require us to capture the birds on the nest. And blue-winged teal are just like you can almost capture them with your bare hands. Um, on the nest is pretty wild. So I've been having fun with them recently, you know, writ large, my favorite duck species is, and this is uh, an exam question on all of my uh, exams that I give to my students, the bonus questions. What is Dr. Reed's favorite duck? Uh, Okay. Northern pintail. Um, Okay. They're my favorite, you know, they're an early nesting species, you know, they're really flexible. They'll nest in really short stubble, you know, when there's still a risk of snowstorms. Um, uh, They're just, and of course, they're really charismatic. You know, they're certainly my favorite bird to hunt in California. We were just, you know, we'd be covered up in pintail, um, you know, just hearing the drakes whistling. Uh, it's yeah, they're just far and away my favorite duck and it's not close. Awesome. Uh, they're definitely in high regard for me uh, during my whole career. I think I could only shoot one uh, at a time per day. So I haven't seen the glory days of what happened previously, like back in the eighties, cause you have the 10, you know, I would have, right. I would have, I would have loved that. But um that might be a whole different discussion. We've we've teased at a lot of other different uh discussions here on our podcast. Y'all be yeah, sure to stay a, tuned. I mean, that's a species and population decline as well for right. a variety of different and interesting and uh difficult to combat reasons. For sure. Um, so we got your favorite type of uh duck to hunt and overall study. We talked about that. How about um where do you hunt currently whenever you do get time away from all this research and students and uh LSU work? Yeah. Um don't get don't get that much time. So in the so if your listeners weren't aware, um, LSU runs the uh, largest college hunting program in the country. Okay. So every every student uh, who comes through the wildlife major during their senior year, if they want to, we will teach them how to hunt and we will take them duck hunting. Um, so we uh, we run it through the wild what's called the wildlife techniques class. It's just a senior level class where they learn loads of things about wildlife, you know, hands on stuff. And so every year, um, me and another faculty member, Dr. Collier um, and, and Dr. Laborde, uh, we teach hunter safety. So I'm hunters safety education certified. So we will teach 30 or 40 students hunter safety. Uh, we teach them how to shoot. Uh, we have uh, firearms uh, that have been you know, donated or on loan. Um, and then we take them on, on their first duck hunt. So we, we do uh, teal hunts uh, and we do big duck hunts. And these are hosted for us at private duck clubs with guides and the whole nine yards. Awesome. So, okay. So like, imagine your first teal hunt is your first hunt ever is shooting teal at Oak Grove, you know, on the last weekend of teal season is like a pretty special experience. Oh, right? for sure. And um, if you, if you join the uh, public hunters after that is your go-to after that, it'll be all downhill from there. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, had we, some great we, stuff. <laughs> we definitely explained to them. This is like not, um, not a typical hunt, but so, so to answer your question, like, a lot of my free time, my so-called free time in the fall, is on mentoring those student hunts. So the majority of my quote-unquote hunting is uh, having sitting in blind with students and calling the shots for them, um, and then you know maybe shooting back up uh, at at a bird that's crippled or something like that. Um, I don't I don't get out a ton. I don't have a lease. Um, 
I put in for uh, some of those White Lake hunts in the marsh. Okay, yeah. Um, I got a couple of those. those are, but basically, you know, my um, my hunting in Louisiana has been at the invitation of others. Honestly, I'm just this is a very busy job, um, and it's hard to learn how to hunt this state. And so, if any of your listeners want to spend a morning in the blind with the waterfowl professor of Louisiana, I'm I am available. There I'm you available. go. That'd be so, awesome. Yeah. So we're about to. No, but I've I've done uh to yeah I've I've hunted um, out of Venice with some of the grad students. And done like the crazy thing where you get on a bass boat at two in the morning and drive down the main stem Mississippi and then get the P-Rose out the bass boat and paddle somewhere so you can set up and yeah. So I've done that whole crazy thing. Um, uh, I haven't, I guess I haven't, I've hunted a little bit in Southwest, mostly the teal season on those student hunts. Um, and then I've hunted a bit in, uh, in North Louisiana around uh, Shreveport again on, on some of those student hunts. Okay. Well, fascinating. So there you go. If you have any, uh, we have any student age listeners here that want to go to LSU and uh, major in wildlife biology and uh, can take that class. There you go. Get uh, two hunts. So um, not be too personal. I'm going to ask anyway, since it popped in my head. It's like, do they have to pay or does like their tuition cover those two hunts at some of those clubs oh, or is it an additional fee? We we pay for it's those clubs donate those hunts. Wow. Okay. Yep. What's, so they, what's the name? Do- so are you allowed to drop those uh, club names again just to kind of you know, get back to them a little bit. Yeah. So we do some at, at Oak Grove. Um, okay. We do some, uh, uh, so, you know, that's, that's Mark m and and Richard Lipsy uh, sort of our, our facilitate that for us. Uh, we do teal hunts at Pine Island. So uh, a guy named John Childs facilitates that for us. We hunt in Shreveport. A guy named Paul Dixon facilitates that for us. Um, gosh, we've had um, uh, Terrell Brown has done some hunts. He's got a place. Uh, sort of over by by Lafayette, um, Crop Springs. Um, uh, Tony Swello, who's a big Delta waterfowl guy, uh, facilitates uh, some hunts for us. He's sort of in the Mamou area. Okay. Um, and then we've got some. Uh, we do some deer hunts as well. Awesome. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we. Um, so yeah. So Tanner Jones donates deer hunts. So you know we'll put them in a tree, in a you know stand you know and sit with them and they'll you know try to shoot their first doe or whatever it is. So yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. So all the hunts are donated. Uh, we've got loaner firearms. Um, uh, Benelli came through for us, uh, and gave us, you know, uh, basically a, a dozen sewer black eagles and monofeltros and things like that. So <laughs> yeah, these kids are, I mean, all these first time college kids are shooting way nicer iron than I am. I know. Right. But, I don't have one of those guns at right? all. So, right? so but, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, Delta waterfowl, uh, donates, uh, a lot of the shotgun shells that we use and they've got a sponsorship deal with the boss. So we're shooting these like three inch boss fives, you know, these oh really shotgun shells at, at <laughs> Teal, you know, these kids are, you know, first time hunters and they're mostly putting holes in the sky with, with these really nice shells, but yeah. No, top of the line gear, top of the line right. club, top of the line right. ammo. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. golly, so, they setting yeah, them up but, for, it might really be all downhill from there. Yeah. But, but it's loads <laughs> of fun. I mean, and then, you know, oh, yeah. but, the, but like, so the purpose of this, of this program is, you know, yes, hunter recruitment, um, but we know that not all these students have become lifelong hunters um, for a variety of reasons. And that's that's honestly fine, right? But they're all wildlife majors. Okay. And so if they're if we're doing our jobs right and they're doing their jobs right, they're all going to get careers in this field. And so like what we what I don't want to see is a state or a federal agency that's staffed entirely by by people who've never hunted before. Right. right? So the goal of this program is to for these students to be introduced to the worldview of a hunter. 
and you know, like everyone who's, yeah, it's like as soon as they they make that choice to to pull the trigger, like it's different for them, right? They're, they're now engaged with a resource in a way that they weren't before, and so now they sort of understand like what the hunting thing is all about. And so when they are in positions of power in an agency or even if they're just voters, right? Um, being able to understand, you know, hunters and the habitat work that they do and the passion that they have is really important to maintaining sort of, the, you know, the North American model, um, uh, at least the beneficial parts of the North American model as we have it. And so that's why we do it. It's, it's introducing students to hunting as part of their education as wildlife majors. I mean, I can, we can all, I know we're, we're on video and the listeners can't see that, but we, I can see you're so passionate about this and that's awesome. Awesome to have that. So we're moving to our next phase, kind of wrap up this, how can uh, people connect with you? And I guess if people were wanting to donate or help with your research, but now I'm going to even ask the question, how to help with that. Um, I know that's through Delta waterfowl, right? I've seen the magazines and publications. I'm a Delta waterfowl member myself. Um, so how can they kind of give back to that either student hunt program or to your research or both? Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, if you just, if you Google me, I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Um, I've got, uh, a professional presence on, on Twitter, you know, at Kevin Ringelman. I mean, Twitter is, I'm, we're all watching that dumpster fire as it goes down in flames, uh, these days. So I'm not sure how much longer that side will be up and functional, but, um, you know, most of my other socials, um, I keep them personal with mostly family stuff. I need to make a professional Instagram. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, emails fine. Uh, it's just kringleman at eggcenter.lsu.edu. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're interested in, in if you're interested in, in waterfowl research or in hunting programs or, you know, need some direction about getting involved in some of these habitat programs, I can point you in the right direction. So yeah, I'm, I'm available to be pretty responsive. We just, we just um, put out um, uh, a YouTube video uh, on campus waterfowl about our, some of our whistling duck research. And I got, a bunch of emails just from you know public hunters who wanted were enthusiastic about whistling ducks and wanted to give me a high five and know a little bit more. So yeah, I try to respond to that stuff as I'm able. Awesome. Okay. So and then uh, for the student hunts, I know it's through Delta. Is there like a Delta waterfowl donation probably page for just the student hunt stuff? Oh, or yeah, um, I can find that and add it to it. But I just didn't know if it was directly linked to if I wanted to help as a hunter help future LSU like to help this program only not the whole hopefully hopefully we all want to help the whole general picture across the country right but in yeah. general to help your particular hunts is there a way to kind of clue in on yeah, that Yeah, probably your your best point of contact would be um a guy by the name of uh Jacob Bouchard B-U-S-H-A-W and if you google him you can find his name he works he's um one of the R3 coordinators for for Delta and actually my former graduate student so he got okay. his master's here and now is working for Delta um, there's actually a, a new regional person who's supposed to be helping us. And I just, I can't recall his name because he's brand new, but, uh, yeah, uh, Jake can put you in touch with him and make sure that if you want to, you know, donate shells or whatever it is, you know, uh, donate a hunt that, um, he can put you in contact with us and we can facilitate some of those things. But man, these kids go through a lot of shells. I'll tell you what, we're, we're talking like, yeah, two or three or four boxes to try to scratch up four or five ducks. So, um, I mean, yeah. hey, it's their first time. I remember, I mean, we exactly. all had to learn somewhere. We all had to learn somewhere. Yeah. So, and some of them, some of them are just dead eyes. Like you get them behind the, you know, on a gun and they're just, they're knocking down clays right and left and they're just natural. So, um, yeah. I don't know. I know you get a wide variety of like men and females in these days with college campuses in general, but like I know teaching a female how to shoot for the first time, it, 
they're like naturally gifted. I swear, like with my wife or, and I wasn't the one that taught her to shoot obviously, but is it in general having women at the range or even on a hunt they're they're naturally gifted. Is that something you, you seem to find too with your program? Or does it vary? Yeah. So um, 70% of our, of our wildlife students are women. Wow. Um, okay. That's, that's our majority demographic. And so, yeah, so that's the majority of who we're teaching how to hunt anyhow. Um, and yes, they're, yeah, some of them are, are really super good. Um, even if they've never, they've never held a gun before. Um, so it's, you know, it's highly variable. It's dependent on, on all the other things you might think, like, if they do other sports that require, you know, intense hand-eye coordination, they tend to pick it up faster than if they don't do those sports. But yeah, it's it's really variable between individuals. Everyone gets it eventually. For sure. Well, awesome. I think there's uh, anything else you want to touch on for the audience or anything else you can think of we missed before we wrap up here? Yeah. I think this has been a good discussion. So, you know, I'm involved in a variety of research projects uh, around North America. Um, and so hopefully I'll be back on this podcast again and we can talk more duck science. It sounds like a plan. All right. So kind of recapping what we've done here. So approaching the end of our uh, model duck mini series, y'all we've had Dr. Kevin Ringelman on. Hope y'all really enjoyed this show. Don't forget to give back where we can. Um, when this podcast probably airs, it'll be towards the, middle to end of this uh, upcoming 2023, 2024 duck season. But uh, you know, there's always, always next, next teal season after that. So make sure you know we're dead eye knowing our targets, helping those model ducks out best we can doing things like joining our NGOs, which is like Delta waterfowl ducks Unlimited, and a wide variety of others. And just paying for our duck stamps really do help give back to the overall picture of how to help ducks. And then it all trickle down to the, uh, to model ducks too, as well. So really do thank everybody for listening. Dr. Gilman, I hope to have you on in the near future. So thanks again, uh, listeners of the Southern Roost. We'll be signing off. Y'all have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Roost, the podcast show for the Flyways and Highways Collective. Connect with us by searching Flyways and Highways on Instagram or Facebook. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcast from. It really does make a difference. Tell a friend about our show. Even better, bring someone new into our beloved duck culture. Till next time, this is the Southern Roost, signing off.